0: The ad went something like this. Looking for a housemate to share the rent of a beautiful three-bedroom home. I often use the kitchen in the common area, like to have guests over, even considering having a puppy. We'll consider anyone who is neat and courteous but refuse to live with a Republican. Did you ever experience Out on the playground where there there was a disagreement that broke out. And sides were being chosen. And someone took a stick to the ground and drew a line in the sand. And the question was, are you in or are you out? Are you for me or are you against me? Where do you stand? In recent days, actually throughout this whole crazy year, there have been some events that have shaken our world. And they've laid at our doorsteps the call to answer, where do you stand? It's not enough to just quietly go about doing what you do. It's unacceptable to just mind your own business and get on with your daily routine. Family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, patrons, they're insisting that you expose your face in the crowd. They're insisting that you cease to be an unidentifiable member of the masses, that you pick a side, that you make yourself known. Where do you stand? Are you for us? Are you against us? Will you change your profile picture to red or blue or black or rainbow or any number of shades of gray uh, that the current cultural wave calls for? Will you do that? And be careful, because silence is not an option. If you don't make your position known, well, then we're going to assume that you're against us. In response to the events that took place at our nation's capital last week, a man that I served with years ago posted on social media this. He said, conservative friends, why aren't more of you denouncing what has happened today. Why are you silent? You can't be silent. Silence is as good as guilt, isn't it? At least that's the way it seems to be. Not speaking up and invites this assumption that you must be on the wrong side of history. So, what's it gonna be? What are you gonna do? What side of the line are you going to find yourself on? The last few weeks, we've been looking at a man who walked into town and shook everything up with unmatched, never-before-seen power and authority. He marveled the, cl- the crowds, and he worried the powers that be. His bold teaching, his outside-the-box behavior, it startled, it alarmed, it disturbed, it disturbed people all over the place especially those who were in charge. And it was so, so, uh, so fascinating that he drew crowds from all around. People from just about anywhere and everywhere dropped what they were doing Left their responsibilities and traveled, in some cases, great distances just to see if the things that they heard were true. In Mark 3, we find that there is Jesus and there is the crowd. There's Jesus. And then there's the multitudes of people who watch, who listen, who wonder how they are going to respond. Verse 7 reads like this. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So you've got people coming from the north from the south and from the east. They went out of their way to see if these rumors were true. Could this man really defy the downward pull of nature and reverse the effects of rot and decay, of disease and death? If he can, wow, that is amazing. Could he restore sanity to the insane? Could he deal with our demons and bring lucidity to darkened minds. Yes. Yes, he could. And that's why the crowds grew. From a a fire-code-breaking number of people that just couldn't be contained within the four walls of a house to a traffic jam-causing mob that tested the limits of a town from a small troop of traveling companions to a life-threatening, smothering horde of people, the throng of observers magnetically drawn to Jesus. (laughs) They were there because he was someone unlike anyone the world had ever known. We've never seen anyone like this before, they said. But with tension mounting, numbers growing, the time had come for Jesus to begin to draw lines. Last week we saw that because Jesus was God, he had the authority to forgive sins. Now we're about to see Jesus draw a line for those who would be in and those who would be out. Because the forgiveness that he offers would not be enjoyed by everyone. Some would would be unforgiven. My friends, there are many lines that are being drawn in our world, these days. Many, many lines. and, And many of them are worth thinking about. And there are decisions and choices and stands that can and maybe should be taken. But hear this. There is none that even come close to the level of importance of the line that Jesus drew. Are you for me or are you against me? Do you believe me or do you despise me? Will you trust and obey me or will you slander me? Silence is not an option. Indifference is the same as rejection. The line that Jesus begins to draw in Mark chapter 3, it's the same one that really the entire book is all about. And, and right in the center of the book, it, it zeroes in like a laser beam on that point when Jesus says to his disciples in Mark eight twenty nine, who do you say that I am? There's the line. Depending on how you answer that question, the seal of your fate, of your eternal existence, is made plain. The difference between being forgiven and unforgiven, it depends entirely upon what you do with Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. The crowds had gathered Not just hundreds, we're talking thousands, maybe even tens of thousands. That's what the the language used here in this passage leads some scholars to believe. This was unlike anything that had ever happened in Israelite history. Why were there so many people? Well, because the evidence was overwhelming. He wasn't, Jesus wasn't just another charlatan. He wasn't just another purveyor of magic elixirs. He wasn't some guy with a clever tongue and a sleeve full of tricks. No, he was the real deal. Sick people were being healed. Broken bones were being fused back together. Withered hands were restored. Disease vanished. And not gradually, immediately, definitively, undeniably people were seeing it with their own eyes they were seeing it up close and personal people were experiencing it not just one not just two but but hundreds and in their own bodies they were walking talking witnesses they were all around of the healing they had experienced it can be so easy to be skeptical right it's so easy to, to, to hear something and say, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. We, we do that about maybe someone talking about a great restaurant or a miracle diet or some new dish soap that is incredible, whatever it is. But until you've tried it and, or experienced it for yourself, you don't really understand how revolutionary it is these people They understood it. They experienced it. And the word was getting out, and people were coming from miles around. That's the reason the crowds were so big. That's what Mark tells us in in chapter 3, verse 10. He healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. The reality was there was so much power in Jesus that even, even a touch could bring healing. So great was the crowd and the surge of people trying to get to him. The disciples, those, uh, those, those learners, those students, those, those who were more than just a gawking crowd and were actually following him, they said to him, uh, they, actually they were told to have a boat ready. Jesus said, get a boat ready just in case these crowds press in too much and we get crushed here. Get a boat ready. That's a big crowd. Now, the disciples, they had essentially crossed Jesus' line already. Maybe they hadn't made a a formal oath of allegiance, but they had heard his call, and they followed. We saw a couple weeks ago, Simon and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John, they all left their boats. They left their fishing gear. They left their livelihoods to follow Jesus. Remember Levi, the tax collector, walked away from his booth the moment Jesus called. But for the crowds, where were they at? Who knows? The jury was still out. Thousands and thousands were around who had a line before them. As far as the spiritual world was concerned, there really wasn't any question when it came to who Jesus was. The demons that were present, they seemed to have no choice at all. They, they seemed to have a compulsive, uncontrollable reaction to the presence of the supreme, all-powerful being that stood before them. Mark records in verse 11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, you are the son of God. One pastor writes this, Though demons prefer to hide, masquerading as angels of light, they were unable to conceal themselves from Jesus. In his presence, they panicked, falling down before him, blurting out his identity, you are the son of God. Talk, talk about evidence. This is incredible. What a, what a scene this must have been. To witness person after person after person experience miraculous healing. To see these people, they're jumping, they're leaping, they're singing, they're shouting, they're praising God. And then on top of that, to have those strange people, the ones that you know everyone talks quietly about as they shoot glances over. The ones everyone expected weren't quite right in the head. And those people, out of those people, all of a sudden, uh, demonic voices fearfully screech out, You are the son of God. That must have been fascinating. What a scene. Which side of the line are you on? Are you on the side of forgiveness that is experienced through Jesus or the other side? With the crowds ever increasing and knowing that his time was short, the time was right for Jesus to recruit some deputies, some people who could partner with him, who could carry out the work, maybe after he was gone. Verse 13 says, and he went up on the mountain. Luke's gospel tells us he actually spent a whole night there. And what was he doing? He was praying all night long. And after that, he began calling. It says this in Mark three thirteen. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonergus that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now notice this. They didn't volunteer. No, they were called. They were chosen. You see, God doesn't wait around for things to go his way. In his sovereignty, he makes things happen. And that's what Jesus was doing here. Jesus said in John 15, 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father, in my name, he may give it to you. The twelve guys that he called were going to be people who produce results that Jesus came to produce. Mark 3:14 it says that he called them apostles. That means sent ones. They were the ones who were going to be his representatives, his ambassadors, continuing on the work after he was gone. From the crowd, he called them. He called them to himself. It says that they might be with him he set them apart from everyone else that they might be closest to him that they might be mentored by him trained by him and and then sent out to preach and to exercise his authority demonic spirits they would look at them and they'd recognize and submit to christ's authority that they were given The apostles' names are listed here. I won't go into detail about that, but I will mention they were a motley crew. They were not the cream of the crop, as you might expect. They were not the Ivy League grads. They they didn't have pedigrees of greatness. They were fishermen. One was a former tax collector. The name Peter was given to Simon. Jesus calls him the rock. Jesus didn't call him the rock because Peter was a rock. Far from it. No, he called him Peter. He called him rock because that's what he was going to transform Peter to be. James and John, they were called the sons of thunder. That wasn't a compliment. (laughs) It was because they were rash because they were judgmental. In Luke 9, 54, we have an example of this. Jesus and his disciples, they're turned away from a Samaritan town. And then James and John eagerly ask, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Do you, Jesus? Do you? Do you? Do you? Sons of thunder, Jesus was gonna change them. The other disciple named Simon, he was a former zealot. He was a freedom fighter, a guy who, was, who had devoted his life to undermining and destabilizing Roman rule. Zealots were the guys who carried daggers and would sneak up behind people in the crowd and would take them out and then would just quietly kind of fade away, maybe drop the knife. That's this guy. I imagine Simon must have really struggled when he realized that there was a former tax collector among Jesus' disciples. What a, what a group of people. Jesus calls them. They didn't deserve it, but he calls them and he brings them together as his team. And we could go on and on with describing the disciples, but you get the picture. The selection of these guys was not by accident. Jesus knew what he was doing. Even when he chose Judas Iscariot, Judas would go on to betray him, play that pivotal role. And betray Jesus to his death. These men were not selected for their power, for their skill, but so that God might display his power in and through them. And he would use them to have the greatest impact that any group of men has ever had in the history of the world. In fact, upon their teaching, he would build his church, his assembly, his called out ones, his people, his bride. Many of us have experienced what it's like to find ourselves in a, a line. We're in that lineup. We're waiting for the moment when the team captain calls our name to be on his or her team. And if you're like me, you were just praying that you would not be the last one picked again. That was me. But be encouraged in the eyes of the world, you may not look like much. You might feel like you don't have much to offer. But remember that God doesn't always choose the likely candidates. As we look at history through the lens of scripture, we see that the most significant tasks for those tasks, he often chooses the most insignificant and unlikely people. As you wait as I wait for what God might do, do with our lives, we need to remember to be humble, to be faithful, be available, and be ready. It may just be that when the call comes, that the call is like that which was given to the apostles. It will be a call that's hard. A call maybe that is exhausting. Exhausting and requires everything that you've got. But it will also be a call that is powerful, and life-changing, and God-glorifying. Twelve men, singled out from the crowd, one apostle to sit over each of the twelve tribes of Israel. The fact that there were twelve disciples... That probably would have stung deeply in the minds of the religious leaders. I wonder if there were some of them who, like the popular kid on campus, was just waiting for the big moment when they would get picked for the team to be on the super team, the best team. It's what they were preparing for all their lives. When God's Messiah, when his anointed one finally showed up, surely... He's going to see their devotion and appoint them to to the most prestigious positions as they deserved, but that's not the way it went down. As we've already seen, their religion had become more about what they could, how they could get to God on their own rather than relying on God's grace and mercy, acknowledging their sin. Theirs was a kind of fictitious departure from humanity's utter dependence upon the goodness of God for forgiveness and restoration. They were they they were like in a dream world, an imaginary world where they thought they could be good enough on their own, and they thought that God looked at them just so happy and so excited that he had at least a few people on the planet who were perfect just like he was that wasn't the case and it's not the case for any of us as good as we think that we are we are not good bible says our good deeds that we try to do they're like filthy rags filthy rags Now, we'll come back to verses 20 and 21 in a moment. Look at what happens in verse 22. Just after Jesus called the 12 to cross the line, the religious leaders, they dig in their heels firmly on the other side of the line. It says this in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Now, there was a Philistine city named Ekron. That's where they worshipped Baal Zebul, which meant the prince or owner or lord. It was the name given to their god. And by Jesus' day, it had become the name that was used to refer to Satan. And there's no denying that Jesus had power, right? There was no denying that he had authority. He spoke to the demons they took off. They left. You can't deny that. The People saw it happen. That's why the crowds were so big. But where did that power come from? Ah, that was the question. Jesus, he claimed to have it from God. John 10.30, John 17.21. Of course, that can't be true. From God? No way. If it was from God, then, then we would have... We would have recognized it, just like we would have recognized if, if John's baptism was legitimate, right? But like John the Baptist, Jesus couldn't possibly be from God because he's, he's not in tune with us. And we all know that us and God, well we're like this. Jesus can't be from God. I think we need to let people know about it. Have you ever been backed into such a tight corner that the only thing that you could do is try to convince yourself and, and maybe the others around you of a ridiculous lie? That's where these guys were at. What happens when you do that? You, you dig a hole for yourself, don't you? And often you dig so deep that it's just impossible to get out with no way of, to convince the crowds that Jesus was a fraud. They, they, they couldn't deny what the people were witnessing, what the people were experiencing. That's when these exquisitely dressed scribes make a desperate attempt to discredit him by declaring, this guy, he has power. All right, he has power. But it's not from God. It's from the other guy, the bad guy. It's from Satan. Satan. There's only one reason that he can command demons, and that's because he's a demon himself. Immediately. (laughs) Jesus exposes the lunacy of that statement. Verse 23, he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, well, then he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Then verse 27, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus' argument is that no, no, no one, no king, unless he's a mental, some type of mental defective, uses his power to attack and destroy and undermine his own kingdom. That's crazy. If he does, then his kingdom is going to crumble. And where's his authority and where's his power? Where's his kingliness now? doesn't make any sense the bad guy's house you know how you get into the bad guy's house and you take out his guards and you take all of his stuff and remove him from power well you gotta have someone who's bigger and stronger and smarter and who has greater authority than him to overpower him then you can come in then you can take over that's jesus that's his point he is bigger And better and stronger. The stronger warrior from whom the demons, when they they encounter him, they just just scream and they run because his authority, it doesn't come from Satan, it comes from God. That's Jesus. Yet here were these men, these uh, religious leaders, they're trying to convince everybody that Jesus is the servant of Satan. You know, what they were doing is the exact opposite of what God's Holy Spirit does. Jesus said in John 16, 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And what's he going to do? He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See, the Holy Spirit testifies to what is true. And what is true is that Jesus Christ is deserving of all glory because Jesus Christ is God. The Holy Spirit's chief goal is to point to the the beauty and the majesty and the unsurpassed glory of Jesus. On October 14th, 1894, a man who was referred to as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he opened his sermon for that day by declaring this, it is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. He does many things, But this is what he aims at in all of them, to glorify Christ. Brethren, Spurgeon said, what the Holy Ghost does must be right for us to imitate. Therefore, let us endeavor to glorify Christ. To what higher ends can we devote ourselves than to something to which God the Holy Ghost devotes himself? Be this then your emotional prayer, Blessed Spirit, help me ever to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon says, The Spirit is saying, Look at Jesus, listen to Jesus. Be amazed by Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Step over that line and follow Jesus. He's the one sent from God. He's the one that you've been waiting for all this time. He's the only one that can give you the healing and the hope and the peace with God that you need. The disciples crossed that line. Deep down inside their souls said, yes, we believe you. We believe you, Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's anointed one, and it's in him that we trust. The crowds, I've already mentioned, for many of them, the jury was still out. They were watching. They were waiting. They were wondering. They were looking mainly to get their physical needs met. And so they were there, close to Jesus, being exposed to his teaching what side of the line would they find themselves on the religious leaders they had made their decision rather than affirm the testimony of the holy spirit they declared jesus to be god's enemy Jesus is not the way. He's not the truth. He's not the life. He's not the one to trust and look to for forgiveness from your sins. He's not here to give you abundant life. In fact, he's here to cunningly steal it away from you. The late great uh, British author and theologian C.S. Lewis, he once wrote that there are, there are really only three options when it comes to Jesus and who he is. He's either a liar. Or he's a lunatic. Or he is who he says he is. He is the Lord. Some other people these days might look at Jesus and say, He's, he's a good teacher. He taught some moral things. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll pick and choose what I, what I like. And uh, maybe I'll pattern my life a little bit after him. When it's convenient for me. Lewis argues that cannot be the case. He cannot be just a good moral teacher. He writes this in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And what do they often say? They say this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, Lewis says. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can Spit at him, kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and claim him Lord and God. But let us not come with with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. What do you do with Jesus? What side of the line do you find yourself on? The religious leaders, they declared him to be the servant of Satan, and that would be a grave, grave mistake. That's because the difference between being forgiven and unforgiven, it depends on what you do with Jesus. Jesus said to everyone around, specifically to the religious leaders, and I think he says this to us too in verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man And whatever blasphemies, they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What he's saying is that you can do the most despicable and outright evil things that have ever been known to man and still have the hope of being forgiven. Like like that thief on the cross. Do you remember him? It was the the final moments, the final breaths. And in those breaths, that's when he confesses his trust in him. Remember me when you enter into your your paradise and, and, and he was saved. God's grace is that big and Christ's saving work is that powerful. It's amazing. But... If after all the evidence has been laid out before you, and after all the pointing God's Holy Spirit has done, you still refuse to acknowledge and trust in Jesus, you're done. It's over. There's no forgiveness for those who do not cross the line and embrace Jesus for who he is, the Lord and Savior. How could there be? These religious leaders, they cut themselves off from their one and only hope. The one who came into the world for the express purpose of saving sinners. That's what 1 Timothy 1.15 tells us. The scribes and Pharisees, they had witnessed the miraculous signs. They had seen his unsurpassed authority. They saw it, they knew it, but they refused to accept Jesus for who he really was. The author of Hebrews some 40 years later would write, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. How can you think you're going to be saved, the writer of Hebrews uh, is asking, if you reject all of the evidence, if you refuse to affirm what God's Spirit has been declaring? I don't know how you do that. You can't do that. If by some other way you convince yourself that you're okay with G- Jesus, you think maybe you can be good enough, you can earn it somehow. You think maybe because of who you're related to or what kind of relationships you have with people who are really spiritual or holy. If you think that you found another way, and you have my deepest pity. By saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit, the religious leaders, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they couldn't, they couldn't consider themselves forgiven. Instead, they were the, the unforgiven. What about you? Are you in Or are you out? Have you crossed the line? Jesus' mother and his brothers, they knew who he was. As the crowds grew, they were were concerned about Jesus' safety. Of course, they would be. According to verse 20, the demands of the crowd were so great, he wasn't even able to attend to some of the most basic human needs. He, He couldn't even eat. They said, He's out of his mind. They tried to pull him away. They tried to seize him, it says. Verse 31, they send people to push through the crowd and get to him, get his attention and let him know your, your, your mom and your brothers, they want to speak to you. It says in verse 32, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you, the messenger says. And that's when Jesus, he seizes the opportunity to make the line even clearer. And with no disrespect intended, I believe, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He draws a line. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God He is my brother and my sister and my mother. The line that Jesus draws is not crossed by looking really good or by earning points by any number of of good deeds or charitable contributions. It's not crossed by being religious or even by having the right connections. Jesus' mother and brothers, they weren't even in automatically. They had the same blood flowing through their veins, and they were not in because of that. No, to cross the line and experience the forgiveness and the eternal life that he offers is to do the will of God. And what is the will of God? It's to accept Jesus as the Savior that God's Holy Spirit is declaring him to be. This is the will of my Father, Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up last day those who do the will of god are those who hear the call of the holy spirit and they trust that jesus is the powerful and authoritative savior and lord the unforgiven they're those who like the scribes and the pharisees refuse jesus as savior And they continue to believe there must be another way to be saved because Jesus is not it. They're trying hard enough. They're carefully following the rules. They're doing all kinds of good things. They're the unforgiven. There's another way. No, there's not another way. There are a lot of lines that are being drawn these days. The only one that really matters for eternity is the line that Jesus drew. The difference between being forgiven and unforgiven depends on what you do with Jesus. What side are you on? Maybe you do find yourself on Jesus' side of the line, affirming the testimony of the Holy Spirit. You know your sins have been washed away. You know that you have an eternal hope and a future. My question is Are you partnering in the work of the Holy Spirit by pointing others to Jesus? That's the challenge that Spurgeon gave us. We need to partner with him, we need to join with him, we need to come alongside and say, You know what? I have answered the Spirit's call and trusted in Jesus. I believe that and you need to do the same as well. Maybe you don't consider yourself to be the sharpest tool in the shed. Maybe you're not the most gifted or the most eloquent or the most charismatic. Maybe you find yourself in the twilight years of life and much of your energy and ability you, you had to offer at one point but that, it's faded now. Maybe that's you. Remember that Christ calls the unlikely. He calls the weak. So that in him, his power, his power might be gloriously displayed. As those who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, let's use what what little we may have to bring glory to God and good to his people, as we share the hope, as we speak the truth, and as we serve the king. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how abundantly clear that he made it, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. He is the only way. Thank you for the line that was drawn, and thank you, Lord, for the Spirit's prompting that says step over, embrace him, trust him, recognize him for who he is, and he will give you life. Thank you for that, Lord. There are many who have not stepped over that line. Lord, there may be some who are watching this or listening to this right now who still find themselves in the position of the crowd, still find themselves just watching, just wondering, kind of deciding where they stand. Maybe Jesus can bring some good things to their life. Oh, maybe we'll we'll uh, go to church if, if he can give us something. Lord, lead them to the reality that they need to trust you. They need to embrace Christ. And Lord, there are some, some who have said that Jesus is not the Savior. Lord, let them know that there is still time, that they can embrace Christ as Lord even now and trust in him, that they can come alongside the Holy Spirit and say, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. Christ is the Savior of the world, and I need him. And would you give them life, Lord? Would you turn their lives upside down in the best way possible and bring them close? to you give them a hope give them a future i pray and lord all of these things that we have spoken about today may they give you glory may they point to how awesome and how mighty and how wonderful you are and we'll give you all the glory and praise and honor in christ's name we pray amen